if you've ever been on holiday to Turkey, you'll have struggled to get your head around the exchange rates. As of last week, one pound sterling would buy you 2,787,537 Turkish lira. A few years ago, we took a church party to Turkey and the holiday uh, destination where you could buy drinks and food in their shop had a system of coloured beads and you kind of bought a red poppet bead that represented 5 million and one that represented 2 million and you know I think the white one was a suitcase full or something like that I understand from January the Turkish government are going to knock 6 noughts off the end of the currency to get it right yes even the pound is not the ultimate currency gold is the standard by which all currencies are judged and one ounce of gold will cost you 213 pounds or 593 million 745,380 Turkish lira. When compared with gold, all currencies seem somewhat devalued. Words can also be devalued. And I think the one word which is devalued more than any other in the English language is the word love. L-O-V-E. So to say God is love or more personally God loves you is likely to arouse little or no response let alone excitement. And I think that's a great tragedy. For if people, if we understood even a little of what God's love is like, it would really transform our lives and our perspective on our circumstances. And of all the people on the face of the earth, Christians should appreciate God's love more than anyone else. If you are a Christian, you have experienced the fullest demonstration of God's love. So writing to Christians in Rome, the Apostle Paul reminds them that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in another letter he writes personally, the Son of God loved me, gave himself for me. And yet, living in a world in which love is traded in Turkish lira, we can become very blasé about such love. And we need, therefore, constant reminders in symbol and in word of what it means to say and know God loves me. So before we focus on the symbols of God's love before us, bread and wine, let me read some words about God's love written again by the Apostle John to first century Christians. Words are on the screen. It's 1 John 3. 1 to 3. This is what he says. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. That is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. Dear friends, now we are the children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. 
in the original language, the first word in this statement is translated in this version of English by an exclamation mark at the end of the first sentence. Literally says, look, see. In the older versions, if you know the older version of the Bible, it says, behold. And the next word, translated how great, reminds us that God is describing, God's love here is of a different kind. Uh, in his commentary on 1 John, John Stock comments, the expression how great meant originally of what country? It is as if the Father's love is so unearthly, so foreign to this world, that John wonders what country it may come from. The word always implies astonishment. Hence the title I've chosen for what I want to share briefly with you this evening. God's love out of this world. So look with me a little more closely at what he says in these verses. And I simply have three points, which are very simple, but I trust also very profound, for they focus on God's amazing love. Here's the first thing that he says. Very simple this. You can work this out for yourself. Maybe some of you could probably preach it better, but I'll do my best. Okay, here's the first thing. What we are, the children of God. The more we love someone, the more we spend on gifts for them and the more those gifts cost us personally. And God has not been stingy or miserly in showing his love to us. Instead, he has lavished, he says here, he has lavished his love on us. It's a word used of giving a gift. The Father's lavish gift. There are many words that the New Testament in the Bible uses to describe what God has given us, what God has done for us in Jesus. One of them is the word adoption. It's a well-known practice in Greek and Roman society. A wealthy person might legally adopt someone outside of the family as his heir. And that person would then bear the family name. Imagine then what it means for God to adopt a human being into his family as his child, his son and heir, so that we are called by his name and can call him Father. No wonder John says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And such a process was no easy matter. A costly business. God's love is out of this world, but God showed his love by sending his Son into this world to die in our place so that we might be forgiven, welcomed into God's family. Writing to the Christians of the Roman province of Galatia, the Apostle Paul says, but when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law so that we might receive the full rights of sons. Literally, it says, so that we might receive adoption. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And when God calls us and adopts us into his family, he goes far beyond what is humanly possible. I've got friends who've been adopted, and it's a wonderful thing take someone into your family by choice. Make them your children. Give them your name. Maybe you're adopted. This evening, that's a wonderful thing. But in human adoption, that's as far as you can go. You receive a new family name, all the rights and privileges, but we can do nothing about our nature for we were born to different parents. But God not only calls us his children, he makes us his children. So look what he says. John says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. 
And that is what we are. The word used for children here, there are several words in the original Greek language in which the New Testament was written for child and children. This one refers to the process of procreation. And when you become a Christian, you receive not just a new name, you receive a new nature. Through what the uh, the New Testament calls regeneration. Being born again. It's what Jesus talked to a religious man called Nicodemus about when he said, you must be born again if you want to get into God's kingdom. And as with a new name, you receive this new nature when you receive Christ, when you invite him into your life, when you put your trust in him. At the beginning of his gospel, John writes of Jesus, he was in the world, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And I simply want to ask you this evening, as we come around the Lord's table, do you know what that means personally? Have you been born again in the Spirit of God? God live within you by His Spirit. You're a member of His family. Now, if you are, there's a sure sign of it. It is never a source for pride, but only of amazement because of God's amazing grace. And that grace is offered to all who will receive it by trusting in Christ as their Savior. God not only forgives you, He makes you His child and He makes you His child by nature. And that's a wonderful thing. Have you received Jesus as your Savior and Lord? If so, you'll enjoy meeting with other members of the family. That's what we're doing this evening. Meeting around the Lord's table. Focusing on God's love. If you've ever lived abroad, as we have on quite a few occasions, you'll find that expatriates from the same country tend to meet together on a regular basis for they share a common identity and values and can often feel marginalised and misunderstood in a different culture. It's not only a good thing, but it's a good thing for Christians to meet together in this way. So John comments on the fact that though we are God's children, this is not generally recognised in the world at large. Like Jesus, Christians are not recognised. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So this is a wonderful gift the Father has lavished upon us. This is what we are, children of God. And then John shifts his focus to the second thing, what we will be in verse 2, like him. John addresses his fellow Christians by a term of great intimacy, translated here as dear friend, which is kind of like weak tea really, but um, the word literally is beloved ones the same special word used of God's love which is shown by those who have experienced that love and show that love to one another and even the most wonderful human love be it between a husband and wife or parents and children has limitations it cannot allow for what will happen in the future but God's love is different out of this world because it assures us and promises us of an even better future and John says the perspectives for your future as a Christian is not absolutely clear. It's not all been worked out and revealed. It's been worked out, but it's not been revealed. He says, what we will be has not yet been made known, but he focuses on what we do know. Our future prospects, he says, when he appears. Uh, the he in him is clearly Jesus. And when he appears, is a re- reference to the return of Jesus to earth in power and glory. There's a divine timetable in place for our world. 
the curtain on human history will be brought down at this point. But what will happen when Jesus returns? We don't know all the details. But John says if we're his children, the first thing is we will see Jesus. When someone famous comes to town, people pay a lot of money to go and see them. People paid it to £150 this week to go and hear the Dalai Lama. But when Jesus appears, his children will see him as he is. The man Christ Jesus, yet our glorious Lord and Saviour. And in that wonderful chapter on 11, 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul compares our present experience with what it will be like in the future. He says, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then shall I know fully, even as I am fully known. Mirrors, of course, in the ancient world were made of burnished metal and they weren't a perfect reflection. They weren't like our, our modern mirrors. And that is, he says, how we see Jesus at present. We don't see him clearly. His image is not with absolute clarity. But when he appears, faith will be turned aside and we'll see him as he is in all his glory. And that is a glorious prospect for those who love him. Wonder you this evening. Are you looking forward to seeing Jesus face to face? What a prospect. We look forward to seeing those we love, especially when we've been separated from them. But imagine seeing Jesus face to face. We shall see him. We look forward to seeing those we love who've gone to be with Christ and being reunited with them. But the greatest prospect is seeing Christ face to face. And not only will we see him, here's the second thing, we will be like Jesus. Now this doesn't mean we'll be identical in appearance to Jesus as though heaven will be full of identical clones. No, we'll be distinct from him and from each other. You'll recognise me and I'll recognise you and we can't be absolutely certain but we'll be recognisable as we are. We'll be a lot, I'll be a lot fitter and less, less, less fat but uh, we'll be at our prime probably. Recognisable, distinct from each other and we'll be like Jesus in two respects. First of all, we'll have a glorious new nature. Yes, we've seen that we receive a new nature when you become a Christian. But there's still an old nature within fighting for the new nature. And so the process of change begins. When you become a Christian, a battle starts in your life. And it continues until we die or Christ returns. So Paul urges the Christians in Ephesus to put off the old self or nature, to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And when we become Christians, we begin to enjoy fellowship with God and we begin to change. Again, Paul writes the Christians in Corinth, we with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And that's always God's plan. When you become a Christian, God's plan is to begin to make you more and more like Jesus. Think of those well-known verses that many people use as a kind of bumper sticker, Romans 8, 28, but listen to what comes after. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And when Jesus appears, that process will finally be completed. We'll never be troubled by sin again. Now, isn't that a great prospect? Those temptations that distress us, those things that bring us down, 
they'll be finished forever. We shall have a glorious new nature. But we'll also be like Jesus in a second respect. We'll also receive a glorious new body. You see, the resurrection body of Jesus when he rose from the dead, he was recognisable as Jesus. But it's a very different body. He could walk through walls, appear and disappear at will. It was a body that would never wear out. I guess we kind of say it's atomic structure was different. I don't know exactly what the nature of the resurrection body is. But it's a body fit for an eternal existence, one that will no longer wear out. Now again, it's not a great prospect. The older you get, the more the bits begin to wear out and all the medical science try and repeat, you know, replace bits for you and some of us, the longer we go on, we're more like the bionic man, you know? Uh, but when Christ appears, we'll have a glorious new body, one that will never wear out. And that is our focus and hope. This week I'm taking two funeral services for two of our members who have gone to be with the Lord this very last week. And one of the verses I nearly always read at the graveside on both of these burials of Philippians 3, 20-21. It comes home with great poignancy as you lay a body into a grave. Listen to what else you say at the graveside. The words of God. But our citizenship is in heaven. This is not where we belong down here. Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Christ appears, our bodies will be transformed. Or we'll still recognise one another, but we'll have bodies for eternity that will never wear out. So this is the second feature of God's love. First of all, what we are, children of God. Secondly, what we'll be, we'll be like Jesus. Thirdly and finally, in view of this, what should we do? Verse 3, he says we should purify ourselves in preparation. Uh, this week, as you've heard, the home ship Dulos arrived in Leith. Uh, it's good to see some of the folks here, down here, another folk as well from the ship. And uh, the crew knew that they were going to be berthed right next to the Royal Yacht, uh, which is a wonderful uh, location. And so they made preparations for that. And of course, something could have happened to prevent their arrival. I understand they had a beautiful crossing, and it was very calm and had a wonderful time. Thankfully, they arrived here safely. Uh, now, John has reminded his fellow Christians there is a coming event, not the arrival of the Dulos or even the Royal Yacht but the arrival of Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. This event has not yet happened, but it certainly will. The Bible has a word for something that hasn't happened, but which will certainly happen because God said it. The word is hope. In normal English, hope means wishful thinking. Something you'd like to happen, but you can't be sure about it. In the Bible, hope always means something that is certain, that hasn't happened yet, but which will happen because God said it. And when you have such a hope, when you're absolutely certain about something that's going to happen, then you get ready for it because you know it's going to happen. Hope is hope that is put into action. So John draws a conclusion from all this. If you've got this hope within you, this certainty that Christ one day will return again, then you're going to do something. You're going to purify yourself. You get ready for the return of Jesus by purifying yourself. How do you do it? How do we purify ourselves? We can't make ourselves pure, but God has made this way by which we can be cleansed and forgiven through the death of Jesus. But we avail ourselves of that by confessing our need, by confessing our sin. 
in the first part of his, this little letter, John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Maybe this evening you're aware of things in your life that are wrong. Things that have messed up your life. Things that actually make you feel dirty. Sin does that. It defiles and spoils us. And Jesus, through his death, offers a way of forgiveness and cleansing. That you can be completely forgiven. Maybe that could be your experience here around this table. This evening. For the first time, to just come to God and say, Lord, I confess that I'm a sinner. I need cleansing. I need to be put right. I need to be forgiven. And I can assure you, not on the basis of what I think, but on what God has promised and done through Jesus, that he'll do that for you. Why not do that as we come around the Lord's table? But it also continues as we keep short accounts with God. Whenever we sin against him, and maybe some of us here are Christians, and yet there are things we've done this week that need God's forgiveness and cleansing. This is another opportunity to put things right. But we don't treat sin lightly or casually. Rather, we seek to purify ourselves by avoiding situations that might lead us into sin, by keeping a close fellowship with other Christians. And John calls this in this letter, walking in the light. He says, we walk in the light, we purify ourselves. 1 John 1, 6 and 7. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. We purify ourselves by walking in the light, getting ready for the arrival of the king, who is pure. Understanding and embarrassed the folk in, in Dulos, but I had to use this illustration. Understanding preparation for coming and parking right next to the royal yacht, the crew spent quite a lot of time cleaning up one side of the ship that would be facing outward uh, and uh, painting it and making it look really nice. And Mike Parker, who's the chairman, went out with the pilot to, to greet, the, greet the ship. And when they came in, the pilot said, I think we'll turn the boat round and make it face the other way. It'll be safer that way around. And I'm sure everybody's outside because the nice clean side is out to sea. <laughs> but the motive was good. They were trying to get prepared. And maybe the message is we need to clean both sides. But I'm sure that would be an enormous task. <laughs> However, I tell you this. There will be something far more embarrassing and shameful if we are not prepared when Christ returns. So we continue to make preparations. So we are not ashamed at his coming. And now, dear children, he says, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. So let me ask you one final question. If Christ were to return tonight, would you be ready? Or would you be ashamed? Maybe you'd be a Christian who's living in sin. A Christian who's got habits and things that no one else knows about that fill you with shame. And when Christ appears, everything will be made plain. There'll be no secrets. And maybe you'd be ashamed if Christ were to come. You need to come this evening and seek God's forgiveness. Maybe you're not a Christian at all. And I simply say this, if you are not a Christian, you are not ready for the return of Christ. And the Bible clearly says, if you're not in Christ, you are lost eternally. That's a terrible thing. It is not necessary because God has shown his love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life and so this evening as we come around the Lord's table let's make preparations now ready for his return ready for his coming we're going to sing a hymn and then John Lowry our pastor for Nidri is going to lead us around the Lord's table